Well, good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. Like Taylor said, I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn, uh, preparing to plant a church in the Brazier Place neighborhood of Houston. It's an honor, um, honor and a joy to be with you preaching God's word this morning. Um, as you heard Taylor read, we're in Genesis 2 in the passage that talks about the first marriage. It is a glorious and a beautiful passage. And I am admittedly um, trembling, as it were, uh, as I feel kind of woefully unprepared to preach on the topic of marriage to us this morning. Um, uh, but yes, we believe, like Taylor said, these foundational uh, these, these beginning chapters of Genesis give us kind of a foundation, not just of an understanding of the scriptures, but of really of life, the universe, and everything uh, for the Douglas Adams fans in the room. Um, and marriage, as a fundamental understanding of marriage, this is no, that is no exception. Um, as we begin uh, to look at the topic of marriage, I want to acknowledge, um, I guess, out loud for us, uh, that, that I think that we all can agree that marriage is a sensitive topic to talk about. Not only uh, is it a hot-button kind of controversial political issue, um, not so much today as it was about five years ago, uh, but more importantly, uh, how one understands marriage and what marriage is holds great implications for many people uh, uh, in the world and so I know, in other words, that I'm not speaking about marriage, that this sermon is not being spoken into a cultural void. Um, many of you in this room have very strong opinions about marriage, what is acceptable and what's not. And many of you have friends, family, coworkers, neighbors who may or may not see eye to eye with you on what marriage is. And I want you to know that marriage uh, and, and the cultural conversation surrounding marriage is one that is deeply personal for me personally. Not only am I married uh, with a family, and so that does make me personally connected to the idea of marriage, um, but I, I also have some people very close to me in my life uh, who have been deeply affected by the Christian belief concerning uh, marriage. When I was a junior in high school, um, my dad, uh, my parents sat us down for a meeting, a family meeting, the day after Christmas, junior year of high school, and announced, and this is a great oversimplification of the story, uh, but they announced to us that they were going to get separated and likely divorced because my dad had come out um, as gay. Another relationship that I have, a very, very close friend of mine from high school, um, came out as bisexual during, I think it was our sophomore or junior year, right around the same time. Uh, and he had evangelical parents. This is before I was a Christian. Uh, and so he came out to his parents, and that commenced a season of intense uh, physical abuse by his dad, uh, which ultimately led freshman year of college to his, his family disowning him, casting him out. Um, he's been on the brink of death several times as his, in his struggle with just, uh, depression um, and, and drug abuse since then. Um, even today, there's many, I have a number of friends, Christian, non-Christian, who who uh, uh, talk very intently, very intensely about the issue of marriage and how the teaching of marriage um, has bearing on our lives. Um, and I wrestle, I continue to wrestle personally uh, and together with other Christians about how to reconcile the Bible's teaching on marriage with the Bible's uh, teaching to love my neighbor as myself, all of my neighbors, even those who don't see eye to eye with me. And so I say all of that to say this, um, I say that with, with trembling, which you could probably notice as I say that out loud. 
Um, marriage is a beautiful, rich topic to deal with, but also uh, a difficult and sensitive topic to deal with. Don't worry, this is not going to be a sermon about homosexuality. Uh, it's not going to be a sermon about gender issues. Um, they'll come up when appropriate, but um, I wanted to say that up front. To, to say that what we're talking about in defining marriage and addressing what marriage has to say is, is something um, that is very sensitive and requires great thoughtfulness and nuance. Because, and, and, and the reason I say all of that is because there's many directions I could have chosen to go with this sermon. But the question that I wanted to, to try to at least give a, a beginning of an answer to um, is not so much just what does the Bible say about what marriage is, but... Perhaps I think the most important question that you and I can wrestle with uh, together for, for a few minutes this morning, I guess in a, in a kind of a prefatory way, we won't be able to answer uh, many of the questions <laughs> about marriage, but, but, a, but a really fundamental, important question for us to ask together and consider as we discuss marriage is how can we hold to what the Bible says about marriage and love our gay neighbors? How can we hold to what the Bible says about marriage and love everyone we come across in our lives. That, I think, I would guess, is probably the, the deepest question that most of us in the room are wrestling with. And so hopefully, like I said, I'm not going to be able to answer that question. It would be very presumptuous to think that I could, in a short time, um, with just a few hours, seemingly, of preparation, uh, answer that question. But my hope is to start a conversation, uh, to invite us into thinking about what the Bible says, actually says about marriage, and how to then wield it, um, wield that teaching in our lives with others. And so, that's a tall task. Let's jump in and see what God's word says. If you would turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 19 uh, in your Bibles. Taylor read Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, and that is the, the base text for this sermon. But what I want want to do is I'm actually going to spend most of our time in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus quotes that Genesis 2 passage and gives, I think, what could be understood to be potentially the the most important teaching in the Bible on marriage. Matthew chapter 19. Uh, In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is answering a question about divorce. And in Jesus' response, in essence... Uh, we see that in order to understand God's posture towards divorce, we've got to understand God's posture towards marriage. And what Jesus says about marriage is particularly important for us, I think. To give a little bit of context, for Matthew chapter 19, since we haven't been in the book of Matthew, we've been in the book of Genesis, I want to point out for us something here as we jump into what he says. It says that Jesus has gone away, Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 says that Jesus has gone away from Galilee to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, which means that he's moved into the heart of Herod country. This is the territory of King Herod. And this, what Jesus says would be significant no matter where he said it, but the fact that he was in the territory of King Herod is particularly significant. Here's what I mean. A group of Pharisees come up to him and ask him about divorce in Herod's country. Pharisees, as you may know, are a group of well-educated, highly regarded Jewish scholars around the, the, the day of Jesus. And there are many scenes that were given in the Bible that describe interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees because Jesus, this God-man, God who became man, took on flesh to become the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, was an astonishing teacher of the scriptures. And the Pharisees were scholars of the scriptures. And the way that Jesus interpreted the scriptures was powerful and was unlike anything they'd ever heard. And one of the chief things that he did as he interpreted the scriptures was to show 
that he was a Messiah from them. By this time, at which point, this is later on, Matthew chapter 19, um, later on in Jesus' ministry, and he has firmly established himself as not a friend of the Pharisees. And so when the Pharisees come up and ask him about divorce to test him, as it says in verse 3, there's more to this interaction than simply the words on the page. For starters, for those of you going back to the, the idea of this being in King Herod's territory, for those of you who are familiar with the story of the Bible, any idea why asking Jesus about divorce in King Herod's territory would be significant? Herod got a divorce, and he had just killed John the Baptist for speaking against divorce, right? So John the Baptist had criticized Herod, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the story, for divorcing his wife in order to marry his brother's wife while his brother was still alive. And so John the Baptist had been imprisoned and executed by King Herod for speaking against divorce. And so when the Pharisees asked Jesus in this same land, Jesus, what do you think about divorce? They're in one sense baiting him, probably hoping that he's going to say something that's going to get him in trouble with King Herod as well. More than that, though, we know that there's at least some genuine interest from the Pharisees in what Jesus is going to say about divorce. At this time in Jewish thought, there was a debate surrounding the question of divorce, particularly with, with respect to how to interpret one of the verses from the Torah. De- Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, uh, in which Moses had written that a divorce was allowable in the case of anything indecent. So it says in Deuteronomy 24, something indecent. So on one side of the debate uh, in, the, in early Juda- in first century Judaism, which was the majority view, one school of thought gave a very lenient interpretation to this verse. Basically saying, divorce can be allowable for anything indecent, and that was open to anything as trivial, even as a wife uh, improperly cooking a meal. The other side of the debate was stricter, restricting the allowance for divorce only in the case of sexual uh, unfaithfulness. And so in asking this question, the Pharisees are not only trying to bait him and get him in trouble with King Herod, but they're also asking him, hey, how about you take a stance on this particularly controversial cultural issue among Jews? Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. So why have I just shared all that? It's a lot of context. Knowing this about the context, I think, shows two things. First, the teaching of the Bible on marriage even in Jesus' day, was countercultural. To hold to a biblical view of marriage went against the king and also against the desires of many in that culture. The second thing is even among the faithful, even, even among the Jewish communities, there was a vigorous debate surrounding how to interpret what the Bible says about marriage. And so the question is, in this moment, in the text, what is Jesus gonna do? Is he going to avoid the question due to the possibility of facing persecution? Probably not. It's Jesus. Is he going to instead open up the interpretive boundaries, saying, I'm here to do away with all this antiquated teaching from the Bible because we're in an age of grace and freedom? As we'll see, he does neither of those things, but instead, what he does is he reinforces and intensifies the teaching from the Old Testament on marriage. And so let's look at what he says. I think he gives us three main things about marriage. The first thing we see here in verses four and five. In verse three, the Pharisees ask him, Jesus, is it, is it lawful for, to divorce one's wife for any cause? And then verse four, Jesus starts by quoting Genesis one, verse 27. He says, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And this might seem like a strange place to start. The Pharisees had asked him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he says, well, you know, God made them in the beginning male and female. It says nothing about the question of divorce. But Jesus continues. What's he doing? 
God made human beings male and female. And then verse five, and God said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So this time Jesus is quoting from Genesis two, verse 24, which you just heard Taylor read. And Jesus explains that within the very design of humanity itself is the answer to the Pharisee's question about divorce. When God was creating everything, right, we have this refrain. God says over and over again, it is good, it is good, it is good. He creates the, the, the light and the dark, it is good. He creates the land, it is good. He creates the animals, it is good. The first time God says it is not good is when he creates the first man. He says it is not good that the man is alone. Man alone, in other words. Um, right, Genesis uh, says that in, the, in, in God's image, he made them, male and female who created them. When God made man and man was alone, man alone was not sufficient to bear God's image on his own. And so God creates the first woman and he puts this first man and woman together and says, behold, it is very good. Male and female, in other words, were made for each other Jesus is bringing this teaching from Genesis into the present and saying to these Pharisees who are asking about divorce, men and women were made for each other, not just to have someone else around because many hands make light work, not just to have someone else around so they don't get lonely, not just because they needed a way to make babies. No, they were made for each other, perfectly complementary to, to one another in every way so that they might fit together in perfect union. As it says at the end of verse five, the two shall become one flesh. So what is Jesus doing here? He's telling us that marriage, which is designed to be between one man and one woman, is not meant to be an end in itself, but is given as a unique means of displaying the image of God himself to the world. God made mankind in his image. Genesis 1.27 again, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Not only, in other words, did God create male and female the way that he did so that they could fit together perfectly in the union of marriage. But this union was meant to be a perfect display of the Trinitarian union that, enjoy, that God enjoys among himself, Father, Son, and Spirit at all times. So that's the first thing that Jesus tells us. Marriage was designed by God, being the union of a man and a woman for the purpose of uniquely displaying God's glorious image to the world the first thing that we see. The second thing that Jesus tells us in this passage, we have to read on to see. He tells, um, this follows from the first thing. Look at verses six through nine. Jesus continues, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. There's Jesus's commentary on the early chapters, on the early chapters of the Bible. Then verse seven, the Pharisees then said to him, why then Jesus? So Jesus had just said, don't get divorced. What God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees then asked, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Verse eight, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There's a lot here. This is not a sermon on divorce. The key idea is there in the second half of verse six, I think, if you want to pull verse six up, Michael. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. The second thing I think that Jesus tells us about marriage in this passage 
is that it is intended to be a lifelong covenant of love and commitment between one man and one woman. A lifelong commitment. To the question of divorce, Jesus acknowledges, of course, to speak briefly about this, he acknowledges um, the allowance of Moses for divorce and does not take it away. So Jesus doesn't say, I'm now rendering that commandment from Moses nullified. No, he doesn't take that away. He, he, uh, he acknowledges it, but he makes it clear that even in the case of an allowable divorce, divorce is no good thing. It's never to be understood as necessary. At this point in history, certainly in the pagan world and even in the Jewish world at this time, divorce was encouraged in many situations. And even on occasion, it was required by law, given certain behaviors. Jesus' words here undercut that interpretation of God's law with respect to marriage, saying in essence that two wrongs don't make a right. If you are unfaithful to the covenant of marriage, why would you then respond by divorcing, which is itself unfaithful to the covenant of marriage? He does this by explaining that divorce is tantamount to committing adultery and causing the divorced wife also to commit adultery. And what I, I don't think the emphasis of that verse is on what actions after a divorce constitute adultery. I don't think that it's talking about whether remarriage is adulterous or some future sexual union. Uh, it, so, yeah, I don't think that, that he's talking about something after the fact. That's not the focus. What Jesus is focusing on here is assuming that the divorce itself is Adulterous. The divorce itself is unfaithfulness to the covenant of marriage that God ordained between a husband and wife. And this could even be compared to being tantamount to, to entertaining the possibility of separating the persons of the Trinity who man and woman in marriage were supposed to image. It ought not be done is what Jesus is teaching. And so thus, while there are certain situations in which divorce is permissible, it is always an example of the lesser of two evils and never a good. Divorce should never be seen as necessary and if engaged in it should be a last resort, far more preferable and in line with God's intention for marriage in the event of any sin between married husband and wife, including sexual infidelity and any other sin is reconciliation and forgiveness. That's always the preferred route. Well, there's more than that that I would like to say and I apologize for the lack of nuance in some of that wording. I'm gonna move on to the next thing. The second thing, though, the second thing that I think that we saw there that Jesus says about marriage is that it's intended to be a permanent covenant. And in answer to the Pharisees' question about it, Jesus' response is clear. God's desire is that what he has brought together in marriage, he doesn't want man and woman to separate. Here, just like what he does in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes this teaching from the Old Testament and far from getting rid of it or interpreting it as no longer applying it, he intensifies it and says, it's not a matter of external behavior and what's allowed or not allowed for you to do out here. It's a matter of the heart. Internal motivation. Are you motivated, motivated by self-fulfillment and chasing what would be pleasurable for you? Or are you motivated by laying your life down for the sake of your spouse and for the sake of giving God glory with everything that you do? If you're concerned about the heart of God and his desire for you, know, Jesus is saying, that even in the case of pain within a relationship, God's desire is for reconciliation through humble, patient, self-sacrificial submission. And at this point, Jesus' own disciples, you and I might be thinking, hearing that, that sounds pretty intense. Jesus' disciples, 
who are with him, listening into this conversation with the Pharisees, jump in and they agree with us. They're picking up what Jesus is putting down about the seriousness with which God sees marriage and they draw their conclusion, verse 10. They said to him, if such is the case of a man with his, mo- his wife, it's better not to marry. All right? This sounds a whole lot like commitment, Jesus. <laughs> Hearing what Jesus says about divorce, they essentially say, if that kind of commitment is required, then why would anyone want in? And that brings us to the third thing that Jesus tells them and us about marriage. Verse 11, but Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those who, whom, excuse me, but only those to whom it is given. And verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus meets his disciples right where they're at, agreeing with them. They said, man, Jesus, this sounds hard. Jesus says, you're right. Not everyone can receive this saying. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows that he's speaking into a culture that was getting divorced right and left because of their desire to pursue their own pleasure and that even faithful Jews were seeking an interpretive way out of the high call of scripture for marriage because marriage is hard work. Into this moment where he knew what he was doing, where Jesus knew what he was saying would be offensive to the culture and to the government, he doubles down on God's original intent for marriage, showing that God's design for marriage is written into the very fabric of God's creation of human beings in the first place and it remains unchanged in his day in a way that continues up to the present day from the original intent in Genesis 1 and 2. And Jesus concludes with verse 12, placing the final touch on his understanding of marriage. When his disciples begin to get cold feet about this level of commitment, notice how Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't say, you're right, let's cool it a bit. Maybe just, just do it. Maybe you should live together before you get married to make sure you really are into it and you know that you want to get married to each other. He doesn't say, yeah, that's good for some people. It's a high call. But for other people, here's an alternative arrangement that you can make. That's not what he does. When the disciples start to question the depth of commitment required, Jesus starts talking about eunuchs, which might be a new word for you. Eunuchs are people who are celibate. Sometimes because of the way they've been born, sometimes because of something that's been done to them, and sometimes because of the calling that God has placed on their life for the sake of his kingdom. What is Jesus saying here about eunuchs? He's saying that it is true that marriage is not for everyone. But the only godly alternative to marriage is celibacy. That is what Jesus is saying here. And that is hard. The thing is, though, when we put this whole teaching of marriage all together, it's hard for all of us. This is hard for all of us, and, 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 and it's hard for, for very different reasons, to be sure. I don't want to ma- make us sound like we all have the same exact story and the same problem with this, because that is certainly not the case. But in a sense, what Jesus is saying here about marriage levels the playing field. There's not one person in this room or in this world who will not have a problem with what Jesus says to us about marriage in this passage. Whether you're called to a life of marriage or whether you're called to a life of celibacy, no one gets off the hook here. There are challenges with both, not just challenges of a practical kind, but challenges to the very fabric of who we are as human beings. 
You see, the human condition is marked by a constant striving for self-fulfillment. And today, in our culture, we're very much affirmed in this pursuit in just about everything that we do. Right? And most certainly in our pursuit of, uh, of sex, love, and marriage. I've heard love defined this way. Love, uh, listen to this. Love is the willful and joyful sacrifice of your life in the service of another in order that they might flourish and be blessed. Love is the willful and joyful sacrifice of your life in the service of another in order that they might flourish and be blessed. So while the world that we live in loves love, there's a lot of people who will take issue with that definition of love. You see, currently our culture, and I would say this unfortunately includes much of our Christian culture as well, sees marital love, which is understood as this ultimate kind of love, as the thing that brings lasting self-fulfillment. Did you hear that? Marriage is seen as this ultimate sort of thing that brings lasting self-fulfillment. Conversely, what that means, consequently, is that until you're able to get married, there's an understanding that fulfillment will forever remain elusive. And there's many problems with this view. To give just two, one, it devalues the humanity and potential of those who are unable to marry or those who remain unmarried. Consider Jesus himself or the Apostle Paul, both of whom remained unmarried for the entirety of their lives. Would anyone say that Jesus or the Apostle Paul were less human than the married men in their lives? No. Would anyone say that they were less fulfilled, had less fulfilling lives than any of the married men and women in their lives? No. If singleness and celibacy, furthermore, are considered to be a calling from God, are we to understand that God calls some to a life void of fulfillment or a life of less than humanness? Certainly not. The second problem with that view of marriage is, uh, with the view of marriage that says that marriage is that thing that brings lasting self-fulfillment, the second problem with that view is that it inevitably leads us to use one another as a means to the pursuit of self-fulfillment. Right? In putting this heavy weight of requirement on others to love us in ways that fulfill our wants and needs, we crush them when they can't meet our needs, and we are crushed, too, by their failure to meet our needs. This is true with members of your family. This is true with your friends. This is true in romantic relationships, and it is especially true within marriage. We are hardwired to pursue self-fulfillment in the way that we desire. And for that reason, the teaching of Jesus here flies in the face for each one of us. Beneath what Jesus is saying here, though, I think is a very profound question. Beneath the words of what Jesus is saying here, and really, in a sense, beneath everything that he says in the entirety of his ministry, including his death and resurrection, the question beneath what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me that what I tell you will bring you lasting fulfillment is better for you than what you think will bring you lasting self-fulfillment? Just a few verses later, uh, there's a story of the rich young man, starting in verse 16. You might be familiar with this story. Jesus says a very similar thing in, of course, a different type of scenario. This rich young ruler comes up to Jesus 
and asks him, he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You might be familiar with the story. You can glance down if you'd like. Jesus says, why do you call me good teacher? It's a whole other thing. But then he says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. The rich young ruler says, which commandments should I keep? And so Jesus lists off several of the 10 commandments. Uh, many of them, he says, you know, thou, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and so forth. And then the young man says to Jesus, great, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus of course, was setting up this moment with this rich young ruler and he knew exactly, exactly what was holding onto this rich young man's heart. And he says to the rich young ruler, do you trust me? He says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And it says in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And you can hear Jesus saying, not everyone can receive this saying, for it is a very hard thing. Jesus asks the rich young ruler, will you trust me? And the rich young ruler turns away sad, because his answer is no. The question that Jesus is asking the Pharisees, he's asking his disciples, he's asking you and me right now, is will you trust me? Do you trust me that my design for marriage is better than what you have come up with in your own mind? Do you trust me that this path of fulfillment in life that you have in your mind needs to come under what I am saying should be true of you and your pursuits in your life? Do you trust me? To borrow, uh, and, and, and to borrow a beautiful summary of how marriage runs through the story of the Bible, I want to show you that in this passage, what Jesus is saying about marriage is much bigger than your personal self-fulfillment, right? Marriage is a theme that runs throughout the narrative of scripture. It runs from Genesis to Revelation throughout the story of all creation as a picture of God's covenant love for his people. Let me borrow a beautiful summary from a pastor named Sam Alberry. He says this, he gives this example of, of, of marriage through the Bible. The Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. In Genesis 1, everything is made and it's incredible. In Genesis 2, we're brought to a garden and among other things that are happening, a man and a woman get together. And the question that we come to in Genesis 2 is this, why are we here? Why are we in this place, in this garden, with these two people, this first man and this woman? It's because their getting together with one another is a clue to what the whole Bible is about. God had created the first man and said, it's not good for man to be alone, so God gives him a woman. After this, mankind is cast out of God's presence in the garden, and what does God say? God says, it is not good for mankind to be alone, and he resolves to send Christ. As the story of the Bible unfolds, we begin to see that God is not just this powerful king up in the sky. He presents himself as a husband someone who is coming to win a people for himself who can't help but make covenantal oaths and promises to them. They're not just his subjects. They're not just his fan club. They're his bride. And sadly, throughout the story, we see that they're a wayward, unfaithful bride. When Christ comes on the scene, he identifies himself explicitly as the bridegroom. John the Baptist identifies himself as the best man for this bridegroom. In Ephesians 5, the passage that most of you who are married probably had read at your marriage, the Apostle Paul says, I'm talking about marriage, but really I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
I'm talking about husbands. You should love your wives, but really I'm trying to show you that this whole marriage thing was meant to point to how Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. The whole, in 1 Corinthians 6, we read that he who joins himself to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The whole Bible, in other words, is about God making a people for his son, Jesus Christ, and human marriage is and ever was meant to be a signpost to that. Therefore, the purpose of human marriage is not to fulfill us, but to point us to the greater marriage that does fulfill us. If you marry someone because you think that they're going to fulfill you, you're going to be a nightmare to be married to. Because you're putting a burden on them that they're not able to bear. She is the light of my world, you might say, in an attempt to flatter. But what that does is that damages and suffocates her because you're saying something that should only be said of God. If at some point your marriage disappoints you, remember that it's supposed to. It's not supposed to fulfill you. It's supposed to point you to what will fulfill you. God alone and the union that he offers with himself made available through the person and work of Christ. There's much more that I wish that I was better prepared to say about this this morning, but our time is running short. And what I wanna do right now is I wanna kind of circle back to that question that I asked us to be thinking about at the beginning. Because I really believe that, that, that we have to believe that what the Bible says is, is true, is good news for everyone in the world. Not just for some of us. There's not some people in the world that because of the decisions they've made, because of the past that they have, you know what, this just isn't good news for them. We have to believe, brothers and sisters, that this is good news for everyone in the world. And so coming back to the question, how can we hold this biblical teaching and at the same time love everyone in the world, including our gay neighbors, coworkers, friends, family? I wanna give a, a few, a, just a couple of points of application for what I think that this could look like for us. First, to borrow a phrase from Sam Albury, again, borrowing a lot from him, uh, keep in mind that not one of us is straight when it comes to sexuality and our understanding of an approach to marriage. Every one of us is crooked. What Jesus teaches about marriage levels the playing field, teaching us that all of us are in desperate need of the saving grace and ongoing grace of God in our lives if we were to understand anything about sexuality, love, and marriage, not to mention the rest of our lives. So of first importance by way of application in in understanding what the Bible teaches about marriage is remember that you and I are not any better than anyone in the world who might think differently. We are just as desperate and in need of God's grace as them. And so we should remember first and foremost that our understanding of what God reveals to us about marriage should not puff, puff us up with pride, but should bring us to a place of true deep humility that enables us to engage with those in our lives with deep compassion and love, with our heart broken, not for the, the decisions that they've made, but with our heart broken that they might know God when they do not right now. Next, knowing that, I think it's important for us to be convinced of this truth from scripture and then to be very intentional, intentional and thoughtful about how we talk about this with others. We've got to be very careful with the words that we use because words can build up, words can destroy. You've probably heard a hundred times, it's not what you say, but how you say it. And this issue is particularly, it's particularly true with this issue. If, for example, 
you find yourself talking to a same-sex attracted person who's not convinced of the, that the Bible's teaching is worth following, know that they're probably not gonna find your arguments about the logical necessity of male to female marriage by your careful explanations of the complementary biology. They're not gonna find that argument particularly compelling. They're probably not gonna find your discussion of the necessity of marriage resulting in procreation to be very compelling. For one, please trust me on this. You will never convince a same-sex attracted man that sex with a woman is going to be good for them. Go ahead and leave that off the table. Don't think that rewiring someone's sexual orientation should be on your list of goals in relationship with the people in your life. I'm sorry to, to be so explicit, but I can't think of any other way to say it. Instead, consider, I just have three very simple recommendations as you talk with people who may disagree with the biblical teaching on marriage, whether they personally struggle with issues of sexuality and gender or whether they just think differently about what other people should or shouldn't be allowed to do. First recommendation is this, listen. Simply listen. Be a really good listener. This involves asking questions, asking questions that you may be uncomfortable asking and hearing the answer to, but ask them nonetheless. Show compassion and show people your love for them by showing that you don't need to be heard, but that you value hearing them. One of the worst things that you could do, I believe, with someone who thinks differently than you on this or really any topic is seeing conversations about these things as one and done, agree to disagree conversations. Perhaps after many loving and thoughtful conversations, you'll come to a place where you do, you have to conclude that let's, we just gotta agree to disagree. But let that not be the first conversation. Don't force it. Be willing to open the conversation and not be heard. Simply ask and listen and learn. Hear stories, share your own. Share your struggles, be honest. Your struggles with understanding this idea. The thing in the world that is most, most catalytic with respect to changing a person is not thoughtful, logical argument, but love. And that's the second thing, love people. <laughs> These are very pedestrian. Listen to people, second recommendation is love them. Share life with people who are different from you. Laugh with them, serve them, have them in your home, go into their home. Show them that you love them and that they're not a project. And this will require the third thing, and perhaps most importantly, entrust them to God. Entrust other people to God. God is way better, brothers and sisters, at convicting and convincing others who are living out of line with his teaching than you are. He's way better at that. So love them, and in order to love them, you've got to trust God with them. Hopefully, Hopefully, as you heard me talk through those recommendations, you notice something. This is the same thing we ought to be doing with everyone in our lives, right? Listen, love, and entrust to God. Christian, non-Christian, your family, the stranger you meet this afternoon, your wife, your husband, we should be listening, loving, and entrusting to God. Listen to this quote from Sam Albury in his book, Is God Anti-Gay? He says this. He asks the question, he says, is God anti-gay? And he says, no. But he is against who all of us are by nature as those living apart from him and for ourselves. He is anti that guy 
whatever that guy looks like in each of our lives. But because he is bigger than us, better than us, and able to do these things in ways that we would struggle to, God loves that guy too. He loves him enough to carry his burden, take his place, clean him up, make him whole, and unite him forever to himself. God loves the people in our lives, and we ought to love them too with the love of God. I need to remember these things with the neighbors that I've just met. I need to remember these things with my dad, with my friend from high school, with my own wife. We can be so impatient sometimes. I am so impatient sometimes. But God has made it clear. Love him, love others, pray without ceasing, live a generous, open life that testifies to the grace of my God and Savior so that others might somehow see and give glory to God who is in heaven. The second point of application is this, and more briefly, this biblical teaching means that some will be called to a life of singleness, and that's going to be hard. Jesus said so himself, and here's a question for us, Sojourn. How are we creating the kind of community in which a single person will feel the fullness of intimate covenant relationship with a family? Francis Chan, who's a a pastor in California, told a story once of a gang member who joined his church. I think Taylor's mentioned it uh, probably a couple times in sermons before. There's this gang member who comes to know the Lord, is baptized in his church, and then comes up to him after a couple of months, I believe it was, and says, I don't get it, Francis. I thought that this was supposed to be my family, but I had more community in the gang that I just left than I do here in the church of God. Sojourn, what are we doing to create the kind of community to be the family that provides more of a community for people who are seeking to live faithful to the call of God than that could be, could be provided by their gang, that could be provided by their LGBTQ community, that could be provided by their, work, their coworkers, the job that they're forced to leave? You know, how are we building that kind of family? Here's a couple of questions. Are you interruptible in your life? Are you available to the people in your neighborhood parish? This is why we have neighborhood parishes at Sojourn. This is why we believe that neighborhood parishes are so important because we believe that membership happens through the neighborhood parish in such a way that we really feel a sense of belonging in this community that we call the church. You can't probably be available to every single person in this church, but you can be available to the people in your neighborhood parish. And so are you available to them? And here's the question. Don't ask, don't ask the question, Don't ask this question. Don't ask the question of whether your parish family feels like a family to you. That's the question that Satan probably wants us to be asking right now and at all times about it. Does this parish feel like a family to me? Because what's the answer probably gonna be? No. And then we'll think about our laundry list of complaints that we have against our brothers and sisters. No, the question isn't, is everyone else being a family to you? The question is, are you being a brother or a sister to the people in your parish? If you don't feel like your neighborhood parish is the family that you want it to be, which you probably don't, (laughs) then the the question I would ask is not, have you complained to your leader, your leaders, or have you complained to Taylor about it? That's not the question. The question is, have you gone out of your way to outdo your brothers and sisters in showing honor? Have you gone out of the way to lay down your own interests for the sake of their interests? And watched, you know, Jesus said, uh, to, to give an analogous example, Jesus said, whoever would seek to gain his life will lose it but whoever loses his, sake for my, or loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a beautiful paradox that we must lay our life down in order to find life. Parish, family, community. 
same is true. If we are looking for a community that meets our needs, paradoxically, what we are called to do is to come and lay our needs and interests to the floor and seek to meet the needs of others and watch as God, as we all do that together, as we live lives of seeking to outdo one another and showing honor, we get to watch as God builds us together by the power of his spirit into a unified family that can provide a place where singleness can be a valued and beautiful option for those in our midst who are not called to marriage. As I close, gosh, let me close with that. Let me close with that. Brothers and sisters, we have been given a beautiful picture of what marriage is. Let us hold it with grace and truth before a watching world for God's glory and the good of others. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Great are you, O God. We're so thankful, God, that you have brought us together in this place that you do every week to encounter you through your word, to meet with one another, to share this feast that we're about to to share together. We're so thankful for the family that you are making us into. And I confess, Lord, at times my impatience with the speed at which we are growing into the family that you describe in the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would help me to die to myself for the sake of your kingdom and this family here at Sojourn, that you would enable all of us to do that by the power of the gospel. Lord, thank you for your word. This, this is a hard word for me this morning to consider believing, to consider sharing with others, to consider putting into practice in my daily life. And yet, your word is good and in your word alone, there is life. Thank you, God, that you don't require that I have all of the answers right now, that you don't require that any of us have all the answers right now. Thank you for meeting us where we are, acknowledging the struggle that we have, meeting us in it and walking with us to greater fullness of joy and life. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be more willing tomorrow than we were today, than we were yesterday, to engage in this journey of growth with you and with each other. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness to engage with people who are different from us. You would give us true, spirit-wrought love for those in our lives who we don't agree with. Lord, that you would empower us to walk gentle, humble lives. Live those lives for the sake of your glory. Make us better lovers of you than there have ever been before in human history and make us better lovers of others than there have ever been before in human history. You can do that. And so we'd ask that you do that by your spirit for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.